Blog Talk Radio. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. You built a time machine out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Cancer Show. That's hot. Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Zachary. Monday, December 7th. And we are once again live on the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adults with cancer. We are your friendly weekly social webcast. Finally, giving that voice to nearly 5 million young adults affected by cancer. Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Well, get busy living because the Stupid Cancer Show is back on the air. Welcome to tonight's broadcast, my friends. We are here to change the world. One chemo infusion at a time and share all of our collective crapness. This broadcast is a program of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation, one of the nation's leading grassroots advocates for the next generation of survivors and co-survivors. It's all about us, folks, and we're bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight and sticking it to a system that's ignored us for far too long. You see, the past three decades of cancer progress have failed the next generation, so there's no reason to think the next 30 will be any different unless change happens right here, right now. So join us. And be the change that needs to happen. Hell, we invented Google, Facebook, Twitter. We kept Sanjaya on American Idol all those weeks. We can do anything we want. This is Generation Cancer. It is our fight and our duty to give back to our own. We have the sheer numbers, the voting power, and the influence. Because permission is no excuse for cure. And survivorship is all that really matters. Last month's show on nutrition and cancer, part one, Kathy Buetti, young adult breast cancer survivor, author of Breastless in the City, Natalie Ledesma, oncology dietitian from UCSF, and Greta McHare, oncology dietitian from UCSF, archived at itunes.i2y.com. Tonight's show on social good and social media with our guest co-host Craig Alvarino, a special guest host to be announced shortly. I'm going to pronounce his last name wrong. Jason Rozepka, <laughs> Vice President of Public Affairs at NTV Networks. Nancy Lublin, CEO and Chief Old Person at DoSomething.org. And Adam Hirsch, Chief Operations Officer at Mashable.com. Going to be a great show. So hello, my friends. And welcome to yet another fun-filled and exciting romp through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show. 
and a stupid cancer welcome to all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Coming at you live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan, I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a 13-year young adult pediatric brain cancer survivor. Not joining me live in the studio tonight, our chief cancer anarchist, Jack Rufard, who is off gallivanting on our behalf at the Bare Naked Ladies Show tonight at Worcester, Massachusetts with Chris Allen. He's there with uh, Mary Azalin, also known as Mary from Rhode Island, handing out swag, promoting the super cancer movement and hanging out with uh, Kevin Hearn and the B&L group. Carol also on hiatus tonight. She'll be joining us back here next week. But however, it is my pleasure to introduce our official co-host and our super special co-host tonight. Uh, Craig Alvarino has 20 years of entrepreneurial leadership. This is a really long bio. Uh, <laughs> Enterprise Collaboration and Mission Critical Transaction Systems. You sound like a robot. As an advising consultant to companies like Baccarat, Chanel, and Lieber. Am I saying that right? That's okay. Correct. He is a frequent speaker on the convergence of luxury, philanthropy, and technology. Prior to founding Active Cause, a partner of I2I, he advised leading companies on interactive strategy and corporate and social responsibility trends, including Ketchum, FedEx Kinkos, and Monster.com. He serves on the social media advisory board for the I2Y Foundation. That would be us. Please welcome my special guest host, co-host, Craig Alvarino. Hey, Matt. How are you? How are you? Good to be here. And uh, how, what kind of bet did you lose to be on the show tonight? I don't know. Am I moving furniture again? Uh, yeah, actually, Craig is also our um, has a sub specialty practice in moving offices for me. So uh, my back is still aching. Yes. Well, <laughs> shot in Friday, bro. And anyway, uh, our special uh, secret special Santa co-host tonight uh, is a good friend of mine that I, I met recently. She's an amazing woman. Um, her name is Lisa Bernhard, and she is the former entertainment correspondent for Fox News. She is the deputy and, and the deputy ed, former deputy editor of TV Guide, uh, and a breast cancer survivor, young adult breast cancer survivor, diagnosed at age 29. She's now 44 and writes about her surgery in October's issue, uh, this past October's issue of Self Magazine, and uh, investigating the alarming lack of information given to breast cancer patients about reconstructive options. Yes, that is clearly a major issue. She's interviewed Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney, attended the Oscars and American Idol. We kept Sanjaya on American Idol all those weeks. That's right. We appeared on, she's appeared on the Today Show. I have not been on the Actually, I was on the Today Show. Uh, she's been on The View. You have to tell me all about Star Jones. <laughs> she's written for the Do New York I Times. Really? <laughs> Please, no. <laughs> anyway, Lisa is, is just an extraordinary woman. Uh, please welcome uh, Lisa Bernhard to the uh, Stupid Cancer Show. Lisa Bernhard. The applause is overwhelming, really. Please, please sit, everyone. I'm so thrilled to be here, and the fact that I let you say my age in the intro just shows how much I like you. Have I, so I haven't scared you off yet. <laughs> Denise Young. <laughs> She's still here. She's still here, folks. So, um, so I, I, I just wanted to, I want to hear your story from, from your perspective. I mean, you're, you're one of those people who would normally come back and say, like, where were you when I needed you, which is kind of what I say. Like, where was I when I needed me back when I got sick? Right. And clearly, you know, the issues that you talk about in your blog and the issues that you write about are still relevant. And the fact that this happened, you know, so many years ago and it still happens today is part of what gets my goat and pisses me off and 
Can you talk a little about what it was like oh so many years ago? We were diagnosed in the Stone Age of the 90s. <laughs> we certainly were, yes. yes. Uh, very isolating, very alone. Uh, I, you sort of have people look at you that, like you're a freak, like what is wrong with you that you've gotten this disease at such a young age? And particularly for breast cancer, which really back then, still to some degree less so, unfortunately, given the amount of younger women that are diagnosed, but uh, really dubbed a sort of older women, woman's illness. And I felt very alone about that. Um, I was fortunate in that I had access, access to some great doctors. What was alarming to me and why I wanted to write this piece for Self Magazine recently was these studies that had come out, uh, mostly from University of Michigan Medical School and, and hospital there, about um, how 70% of women today are not told by doctors about their reconstructive options. Uh, reconstruction is not right for anyone. I'm not everyone, rather. I'm not an advocate for reconstruction. I'm an advocate for choice. I'm an advocate for everybody knowing all the information that's out there and being able to make an informed choice for what is right for his or her body. And when women aren't being given a choice, and particularly uh, younger women who um, hopefully will have a longer life expectancy ahead of them, but really for, for all women, and not to discriminate against anybody of any age, but you should just be told of what all your options are. And so I was quite alarmed by this information and uh, wanted to get out there and kind of spread the word. So that was my impetus behind that piece for self. Well, and again, like, it, it, it was... It touched me a lot, too, because, I mean, the raw nerve here is just simply that, that we are a generation that is just so disenfranchised by the lack of, of I guess, continuum infrastructure, if you would, over the last, you know, 20 years or so. And I, I understand that our show is going to take a huge nosedive now because Jack Buffard is on the line. And uh, so I, I, will, I will allow our listeners the opportunity to, to uh, leave at this moment um, because uh, – I welcome uh, Jack Buffard to the show. Hey, Jack. Hey, Matt. How are you, pal? All right. Where are you? I'm actually uh, at the concert. I'm backstage in the catering area having some dinner with Mary with from Rowan. And um, uh, Chris Allen's on stage right now, and B&L is going to be up in about a half hour. Are you near B&L right now? Uh, they are in their dressing room. Okay. And I, is... I'm, I'm in a different area stuffing my face. <laughs> really? And I got to tell you, the best thing about the Rockstar lifestyle is the catering. Fair enough. This so, is, it's like where in the world, where's Waldo with, with Jack at this point? Yeah, and, uh, and I have a funny, uh, funny situation that just happened about a half hour ago. Ingrid Michaelson is another artist that was on the bill tonight, and after her set, she announced that she was going to be signing CDs at their merchandise table, which we're sharing, you know, which I should say they're sharing with us. So Mary from Rhode Island and I got completely inundated by like a thousand people that were like, oh my God, sign my ticket, sign my CD or whatever. And they sold out of CDs. So people started grabbing the I2I brochure and having Ingrid sign that. That is super sweet. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was so crazy that like I didn't really get a chance to take a picture because I was going to take a picture of the huge mob in front of our table and tell you how popular we were, but that would have been a lie. So. <laughs> Well, I hope you're having a good time. What time does the show go till? Um, B&L is scheduled to play an hour. I think uh, they go off at like 10.30, 10.45, something like that. Okay. But um, Kevin was really impressed with the new, uh, all, all the new literature that has his picture on it. Of and, course uh, he is. <laughs> Why wouldn't I, he be? Uh, <laughs> that's right. And uh, I was talking with Ed and Tyler for a little while before their sound check, and Tyler was saying that they really had a good time playing OMG. 
and they're excited to do it again next year. And I was telling them that people are still talking about it, and everybody who couldn't be there is really excited for next year. So it's just really awesome to have them on board with uh, everything that we're doing. Yeah, and, and did you happen to mention to Tyler that the Matthew Zachary song that he spontaneously wrote at OMG has gotten over 5,000 listens on YouTube? I'm sorry, what song? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but before I let you go, I do want to say hi to, uh, to Mr. Alberino, and uh, thank you for sitting in my seat and keeping it warm tonight. And for those of you who don't know who Craig Alberino is, he is my man crush for the New York Metro Group. <laughs> Love you too, Jack. You bring me back, some, uh, bring me back something with an autograph. Okay, I'll not yours. You, uh, oh, all right, never mind. No, I, already, <laughs> I, I already have his. Mary's signing some stuff right now. Who, whose name would you like on the on the item? Right. <laughs> Don't name it. How's that? To Loverboy, of course. Yeah. Right. So, all right. Well, have a good show, guys. I just want to say hi, and uh, you know, I'll be back next week if I'm if I'm invited. If I don't lose my spot to Craig. All right. He'll keep the seat warm. We'll see you soon. All buddy. right. All right. Jack Buford, everybody. He gets the crazy applause. That's about the most applause he'll ever get in his entire life. <laughs> oh, anyway, so uh, we got a few minutes. I just wanted to uh, to have Craig talk a little bit about um, you know his role with our organization. And and he, I met Craig through an I2 wire named Jill Harrison, who's been on the show numerous times. I don't know if she's in the chat room tonight or her um or her sister Bree's in the chat room tonight. But uh, I know Jason is in. Jason Mallett's in the chat room. He's met Bree and Jill in numerous times in D.C. And um, Jill is a young adult lung cancer survivor although that might be up for debate, according to, uh, to Craig. But uh, Jill introduced Craig to me. How do you know Jill to begin with? Oh, actually, I used to, I used to work with uh, Jill's dad and uh, became dear friends with the family. And, uh, you know, I, I have to say I owe Jill a, a debt of thanks just uh, being introduced to such a wonderful organization. I've made so many new friends through I2Y. And, uh you know, just to talk a little bit more about what we're doing uh, recently with I2I, we've started the wristband campaign on Amazon, and uh, we've done over a thousand wristbands in the last four to five weeks. So it's it's looking pretty good, and uh, great, great, really uh, holiday initiative. Yeah, and for anyone out there who's uh, listening, we 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 sold seventeen thousand wristbands in one day uh, in, this July. So we decided that. Uh, we probably needed to continue that momentum somehow, and we launched our own. Obviously, you visit i2y.com. It's right there on the homepage. But if you go to uh, amazon.i2y.com, it takes you right to the, uh, to the order page. And what's even better, and I just learned this today, apparently, if you order our wristbands going through that page and then you order like a blender or something, <laughs> or like a Snuggie perhaps, uh, if you order a blender and a Snuggie um, after ordering our wristbands, apparently we get a percentage of uh, the money you spend on the blender and the Snuggie. Although you lose credibility by buying the Snuggie, we might not know you bought the Snuggie, but we still get the money. Yeah, I, I know, Matt, and I'll, and I'll be passing those reports on to you. Okay. <laughs> so, if, all right, well, you know what? If you're Jack Buford and you buy the wristbands online, you have to buy a Snuggie, and then you have to send us pictures of you wearing the Snuggie uh, along with your feet. I was going to say the sneakers, of course. Yeah, the sneakers. You know, I gave a concert uh, this weekend in Staten Island at Snug Harbor, and Jack was there. And lo and behold, what do I see posted on my Facebook wall this morning? but his shoes obscuring me playing the piano on stage. <laughs> so thank you, Jack Buford. Well, you're either seeing a picture of his sneakers or you're going to just see him up on the desk right here. Yeah. I, I, I might put the wall back up next time he's here. <laughs> 
So anyway, Matt, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the wristband and the history of the wristbands. I mean, you know, stupid cancer and the whole brand. Um, what's the history behind giving cancer the bird? I mean, because that, that really, to me, it seems to encapsulate the whole feel for the young adult cancer survivors. I mean, that's how everybody's feeling. I, I'm almost hesitant to say this, but it was Jack's idea. <laughs> See, Jack, I'm giving you props. It, it really was Jack's idea. He just decided one day to launch a Facebook campaign called 10 Million Strong for Giving the Bird, yep. which is just like this stupid Facebook thing where it's like 100 million strong for, like, breathing air. Right. It, it, it means nothing, but you just did it. And we had, like, 6,000 people in there in three days. It was just the strangest phenomenon. We have about 10,000 in there now. It slowed down. But it just it – just, I think he did that because he was inspired by the Spencer's campaign that launched this summer that sold all those wristbands. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I look at this. I'm a marketing person. I look at this from like an anthropology perspective. You know, we've, we've had so many different semantics as to anger management with cancer, whether it's screw cancer, cancer sucks, fuck cancer, whatever it is. And yes, we can curse on the show. Excellent. We're not FCC regulated. <laughs> I'm so happy to know that. And, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, made, why did I launch Stupid Cancer? It's because it just sounded like Homer Simpson would say it. And, you know, cancer's not stupid. It's an intelligent disease, and we get all these old people that say, why is cancer stupid? I don't care. You know, it's just a euphemism. It's a fun thing to say, and it's more church-friendly <laughs> than saying fuck cancer. But at the end of the day, you know, what it really is is, you know, you're giving cancer the bird. You're flipping it the old Jersey salute, as they say. And I don't know, it, it just resonated with me that that was something that probably other people have used in the past. It's not a new idea. But having it associated with our stupid cancer, it just seems to make sense. And uh, I have to thank Spencer's for coming up with the creative and thank Jack. The one time in my life, thank Jack for, you know, putting the two together for a really great social media campaign. Can but, I jump in there one second? Yeah, go ahead. As to what struck me immediately about the wristbands and why I thought they were so great and effective. And, and when you sent me the initial email about it and I forwarded it out to other folks, and a lot of people, uh, I got a lot of response from a lot of uh, people who said, my niece, my daughter, my this or that, they're going to love this, they're going to love this. Because um, as admirable as, you know, the whole wristband campaign has been obviously with Lance Armstrong and many others who have done the wristband, and what goes kind of lockstep with what your, this organization, your organization does is by tweaking it and sort of making it the anti-wristband, um, it's very cool. It's very, you know, you've brought something when you say, well, it may not be original. Well, it is original in the sense of giving it the black color, giving it the bird. Um, that's new and that's hip to kind of give it that the way, you, give it that edge, the same edge that your organization has, and it sets you apart. And um, kind of make, by making it sort of that anti-wristband, it's um it's fantastic the way you know and it's all it's all towards the bigger brand and and the bigger you know f u to cancer as as you say and so um very clever and very you know i i just know personally i the minute you sent that to me it was just tremendous response from anybody that i sent it to so I think the most unanticipated response we got to the wristbands was but I can't wear it to church <laughs> but yet they wear it to church anyway. Yeah. It's just like this sure. this total it's I don't know I, I like the anti wristband I didn't coin that someone else said that and I sort of picked it up on our press release about it. You know, I we got to get to Jason in a second but I I want to one of the most powerful books I ever read in advertising was called Disruption. And it was written by a guy named Jean-Marie Drew who I believe was one of the co-founders of TBWA Chayette back in Paris when they launched like in the 1900s or 19 whatever it was when advertising first became you know, like a print medium or whatever. And He's very old now, but he wrote a book called Disruption 2 and more disruption or whatever. But no one's ever really disrupted cancer. It's 
always been like this this touchy feely feel good have to play nice in the sandbox and sensitive sensitivity and but you know what like it needed to be done and I don't mind getting in trouble I've gotten in lots of trouble and I don't care because I think it's helped build the brand but it means a lot that you would you would give that back to me Lisa about how you know it, it is a very it's sort of a, if you could put a countercultural spin on cancer that wasn't I guess obnoxious or really offensive maybe that's that's what made it so uh, resonant sure and i didn't even read the press release <laughs> okay yeah i didn't read the release either but i but i have to say is you know as an i2i fanboy because as most of you know if you've met me at any of the gatherings i i'm not a survivor but just obviously a dear friend to the organization and uh but but the bands are the, they're the rub man and i i give them out wherever i go and and i keep a supply and people love wearing them and it definitely creates that awareness. It's it's definitely got the cool factor. So uh, maybe we could ask Jason a little bit more about this since he's representing the uh, the MTV folks. Absolutely, and that's a good segue here. Uh, before I just bring Jason on really quick, uh, this Friday, December 11th at 1 o'clock Eastern, from 1 to 2 Eastern, uh, Jack and I are going to be on Sirius Satellite's Dr. Radio Show, The Nutrition Show, with Samantha Heller. Uh, it's Sirius 114XM119, online at Sirius.com. We have an hour, literally an hour, to talk about stupid cancer and nutrition with uh, Samantha Harrell. 250,000 subscribers to that show. So it should be really good uh, if, you, if you have Sirius. If you don't have Sirius, by the way, because it is expensive and we're all kind of broke as young adult survivors, you can get a free, like, 30-day trial and then just cancel it right after you listen to the show, which is a kind of cool way to do it. So uh, check it out this Friday. And with that, it is time for our first guest. Okay, Jason Rezepka is the Vice President of Public Affairs at MTV, where he's been charged with using MTV's superpowers for good. He does this by marshalling the network's forces to engage and activate America's youth on some of the biggest challenges facing our generation. He oversees all of the MTV pro-social campaigns, including A Thin Line, which just launched last week to address the emerging issue of digital abuse. It's your sex life on sexual health, and MTVU's half of us on mental health. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, my friend, Jason Rozepka. Hello, Jason. Hey, Jason. Hey, gang. Welcome to the broadcast, my friend. Thank you for being on. Thank you very much for having me. And before we start, I just want to apologize to my grandmother, who I think may be listening, and I didn't realize that it was going to be this blue. Like, I didn't realize there was this kind of a coarse language here. <laughs> I'm just, my grandma went to bed a half, an hour and a half ago. Totally. I was going to say sorry, Grandma. That's okay. <laughs> but I, thank I, you for having me on. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I was really flattered to have met you a couple of months ago. I'm really glad that you're a fan of what we're doing, and I'm a fan of what you're doing. And uh, Can you talk a little bit about the origins of MTV's decision to, like you said, use its superpowers for good? You guys have been around for, what, like 30 years now, coming up on 30 years and uh, you had a lot of influence. I, I mean, I grew up with MTV, um, you know, and, you know, where where have you come? What, what type of um, things have you seen in the last 10 years that have led to the uh, types of projects you're working on these days? Yeah, it's, it's interesting how it evolves. I think in the beginning it was almost like a happy accident. It was like 
uh, Live Aid and We Are the World, and these things these things happen organically, and they just appeared on our air because the channel was about reflecting every aspect of youth culture, and so that got woven into the fabric of this place really early and a lot of the pioneers the people who built this brand and grew it um were social justice advocates and they took it seriously and they knew that this channel had broad reach and it had a lot of influence and it needed to be about more than just peddling pop culture or pepsi it's like we needed to connect with young people on the issues that that they care about because young people have always been the engines for social change so um that's always just been here and then about 12 13 years ago my boss Stephen Friedman who now runs the network was hired to codify that and and really be strategic about how we do public affairs how we empower the audience and you know from his work we've launched campaigns around sexual health um around genocide around discrimination voting, you know, the environment, all that's born from this commitment to this. And I think now it's more important than ever, just given where millennials are at. And if we want to be relevant to millennials, we have to reflect this aspect of youth culture and um, to, you know, empower them to have a, a, an outsized impact on the issues that they care about. Let me ask you a question. Is it fair to say that the millennial generation is so narcissistic that they do it for themselves and it's a happy side effect that it benefits society? I don't believe so. I think when we've looked deeply at the past several generations in the pendulum swing, if you look at this generation, from what we've seen, they more reflect their grandparents, the greatest generation in terms of tackling the big challenges that that confront them, and I think they're getting started early, and I think that they have a new sense of community through being connected uh, via technology and social networks and, and seeing the results of their efforts. So um, I think it's really born from recognizing that they're inheriting all these problems, and in some ways this generation is potentially humanity's backstop. Like there's a lot of big things that have accumulated, and they're going to get right, and we're going to eclipse some of these challenges or – you know, thanks for coming. So, so as we continue to blame our parents for the world's illness, um, can you talk about the origin of the word slacktivism, which is something that I find entirely brilliant? <laughs> and if it doesn't encapsulate what my sort of imago of the millennial generation is, what does it to say to you and how did it originate? Well, I think slacktivism is a term that you can trace back a ways, and it's just a simple combining of slacker and activism, but I think it embodies actually a really exciting trend that a lot of folks in the philanthropic world are still coming to terms with. And I know when I started in this role in January, I was in a meeting with a foundation very early on and started talking about slacktivism. They said, yeah, we've got to fight slacktivism. And, and I countered, no, we need to embrace it because it's a front door and it's a starting point to get people activated and to get them involved, then it's kind of on us what we do with those people. How do we ratchet them up to greater levels of engagement? But when you can become part of the solution by fanning something on Facebook or, or playing a video game uh, around social change that has action steps that get you involved right now, um, I, I very much view slacktivism as priming the pump as, as a way to get it started and, and a way to create broad-based awareness, which you can then translate to action and, and impact. 
Jason, you know, I, I have a question for you there. You know, I, I'd like to understand what is the bridge? I mean, what's the bridge between that entry into the pipeline and bringing people in and, and having them fan something or, or broadcasting awareness to getting them to actually perform an, act, uh, an, an action or to donate or to do something? So I find sometimes that, that that's a little bit more difficult to cross. It's true, it is, and I think you have to take as a given that a lot of people are only going to give you a, a couple clicks of the mouse. Like they're not going to necessarily then go out and start a rally or you know start an organization around these issues. But if you can best put to use the the broad clicks that you're going to get around uh, engagement around an issue, and then it really comes back to the ask. I think like so if, if some if I think the case giving challenge was just a recent great example of this. They built a lot of capacity, raised a lot of small donations through that, and a lot of organizations picked up new followers and people who expressed an interest in what that organization is doing. It's now coming upon that organization to go back and say, okay, so you donated five bucks um, you know, a couple months ago, and now I'm going to ask you to do something else because I know that you're in Cincinnati and we've got a big event upcoming this weekend. So I'm going to ask you to bring a friend out to this event or – you know, I'm going to ask you to sign this online petition, which is connected to our efforts, or you know, volunteer. I think you can step up from those low level, uh, those low levels of engagement, and try and bring people up this kind of take action escalator, this take action ladder. Uh, but it's incumbent upon you to make that ask and try and translate that interest into into action. So, uh, I mean, if you're going to look at like the sort of the the bell curve of, of activation, like we, the one-click laziness that people most often engender. I, I was so enthralled by this. There's a brand-new campaign on Facebook through Chase Giving, and it literally is. I've never seen it before. It's literally one click, not even two. It's one. And, like, I don't know how they're not getting billions of people, you know, doing this thing. How lazy do you have to be where one click isn't enough <laughs> to activate you, you know, even for a cause you never heard of. I mean, it, one click. It's like you breathe on a mirror and it fogs, and that's all you have to do to care about it. Like, so I, I want to well, – let me just dovetail this into the, the cyber abuse issue that you're, you're, um, you guys are taking on with the, uh, with the Thin Line, which, again, I, I thought was brilliantly executed. It's a phenomenal brand, and it's a great website. And um, – <clears throat> Within the young adult cancer community, there's, there's a lot of sort of inherent self-analysis and self-doubt and, and low self-esteem and depression just by the merit of your, what you're going through. And especially when you're in high school or college, kids are mean. And it, it, I can see that translating through the digital media to just make it a, a much more serious issue for our, our generation when you're dealing with cancer. Uh, what was the tipping point when this notion of cyberbullying and um, you guys call it uh, digital abuse. What was the tipping point when that sort of became a necessary conversation? Well, I think for us, we took a long, hard look at where we could place our energies and thinking about us as a unique animal that reaches pretty much all of America's youth. So if we can engage the whole country uh, in an issue, we have to think about what are the issues that affect them, um, which are emerging which are going to affect them from now on, and where can we really have an impact? I mean, the, the reality is MTV could take on anything and have some kind of an impact. We could take on malaria or clean water or or uh, just about anything and, and move the needle a little bit. But in thinking about 
something that touches as many members of our audience as possible. When we started to do the research on this, we saw that it literally touches virtually every American youth now in some way or another, from those that have been the victims to those that have been the perpetrators. We started to look at what are the outcomes associated with these behaviors, and we, we see young people who are taking their lives. We see um, you know, instances where victims of digital abuse are two and three times more likely to have contemplated suicide, three times more likely to have considered dropping out of school. And then we think about our platforms, we think about the TV screen, online, mobile, the way we can make that work in concert to give young people information and resources and um, partner with them to figure it out and really have an impact. So it was a very calculating decision to say, we're going to step out on this and this is going to be a lead effort where where we can really partner with the audience, but we're also going to marry with that efforts that we continue to run on sexual health, um, a campaign upcoming with the Gates Foundation on college affordability where we're going to partner with college students and those that are seeking to go to college to pay for school. So. Those all work in concert. Jason, I just wanted to jump in for one last question. It's Lisa. Um, I don't know. How, how long have you been at MTV? Uh, a last time, about five years now. Oh, okay. Because I was just curious. You know, so much has changed on the air. You know, and, and like Matt, I've uh, and I'm sure like Craig, you know, grown up with MTV um, from the from a programming standpoint. Um, it's a place that you know morphed from videos to so much reality TV. Right now, the network, the face of the network, and what you see broadcasted is is radically uh, different. Um, other than technology, I mean, how does how has that sort of affected what folks in your department have sort of done with social awareness? I mean, I you know I go back to the Choose or Lose campaign, which was sort of the first big um, step that MTV took to get young people involved, as I recall. Um, can you just sort of speak to that mindset as as so much of what they've wanted on air? has sort of shifted and you followed that trend, um, mm-hmm. what the sort of mindset is in terms of um, social activism? Sure. Well, I think like all media, the the ratings pressures are as, tense as, are as intense as they have ever been. So if you look at MTV 15 years ago, we didn't have nearly the pressure to perform that we do now from a ratings perspective. And also the way that that people, and particularly young people, consume media has changed dramatically. So if we were a network that just programmed music videos, we would have probably gone out of business 10 or 15 years ago because um, now young people consume music videos when they want on the platform that they want. You don't sit around and wait for the Gaga video to cross your screen. You've you've gone and programmed it yourself. So, so that wouldn't be really sustaining. Um, we did pioneer the reality genre in a way. We've continued, I think, stay at the, the cutting edge of it as it's shifted and morphed. Um, now reality is everywhere. So I think the way that we approach it is we have a bigger toolkit now. So we have on-air, and um, I still think that one of the greatest examples of how we can use on-air is uh, a <laughs> Hallmark reality TV show in the real world. When Pedro Zamora showed up on the real world as the first ever openly gay HIV-positive individual, he helped catalyze a national conversation about HIV and AIDS. President Clinton you know, credited him with... Um, with humanizing and and, uh, really changing the dynamics in the country around that issue. So I think where we can use our most popular programming as a jumping off point for a conversation about social issues, that's really at our best. It's it's not even necessarily needing to do the pro-social show. It's about the way we hook into um, where the audience already is. And then I think we marry with that um, our creative wherewithal and the ability to create really impactful um, PSAs and, and spots that help the audience think about things in a new way to to get under their skin. Uh, we marry that with what we can do online from MTV.com to the social web. 
um, what we can do now on mobile and, and plugging social issues into our right. biggest events like the VMAs and movie awards. And, you know, that's, that's the way we view it now. It's like it's, there's no silver bullet. It's how do we make all these things work together to it's really off, make an right. impact what you want to do. Well, I got to tell you, Jason, clearly we, we want to have you back on the show. This is a conversation where you could just be our only guest for the entire broadcast, and we'd, we'd, run, we'd never run out of things to talk about. But we have to move on to our next guest. But I really want to thank you for taking the time to be on the show. I look forward to talking to you further, and I look forward to continuing to engage MTV in the, uh, the youth cancer culture movement. So take care of yourself. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay, Jason Rezefka, everybody from MTV. Thank you. Now our next guest. Okay, Nancy Lublin is the CEO and chief old person of DoSomething.org, the largest organization in America for young people and social change. She's also the founder of Dress for Success, the organization that helps women transition from welfare to work. She created Dress for Success with a $5,000 inheritance she received from her Poppy Max. Dress for Success now exists in 96 cities and 8 countries and has helped nearly 1 million women reclaim their destinies. She writes a column for Fast Company magazine as the author of Doing More with Less, 11 Things Big Business Can Learn from Not-for-Profits, to be published by eight, in April by Penguin, proud to have been elected a young global leader by World Economic Forum, and to be the mother of two young children who actually like broccoli. Please welcome to the Super Cancer Show, Nancy Loveland. Hello, Nancy. Hi, how are you? I'm sitting here the whole time trying to figure out what movie that music is from. What was the movie? Top Gun. Oh, of course it is Top Gun. All right. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the most impressive thing about you, Matthew. There you go, your, your recall. <laughs> well, my mother has a master's in film, and she literally inculcated Clockwork Orange style, my brother and I, with every possible aspect of Hollywood uh, history, from you know Buster Keaton all the way to you know um, awesome. Steven Spielberg. I never got past. I've never seen all of Clockwork Orange. That's a terrible thing to acknowledge, but I could never get past that like awful rape in the first ten minutes, and so I'm never able to. I've, I've never. I've tried to see it like eight times, and I can't do it. Malcolm McDowell really earned his stripes in that film. I will tell you. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think having you on the show after Jason is so relevant because the majority of the the. Um, the conversation was geared towards what they're doing online. Yeah. And you are such an extraordinary compliment to that because you are not only online, but you are offline. And uh, can you talk a little about where, first of all, your origins, like how did you become so like obsessed with social change and really empowering other people? Where was that point in your life that you said, I don't want to sell Doritos to teenagers like I did and, you know, create dress for success and, and sort of get that social validation that you're really affecting true change. So when I was in preschool, um, there was a boy in my class. I, I will never forget his name. His name is Seth Costo. And uh, one day he declared purple to be a boy color, and none of the girls were allowed to play with purple. And I crawled under the table. I grabbed magenta, violet, lavender, aubergine, and anything else that resembled purple um, and held them apparently in my fist over my head, screaming as I ran around the room, I've got the purple, um, <laughs> to the extent that I think my parents actually had to be called to the school to calm me down. 
So um, I think I was born a little bit crazy, and uh, I was a Crayola warrior. So I don't know, I guess it started when I was three, and it sort of has never stopped. And, um, yeah, I don't know where it comes from. It's in my DNA. Well, I'll be back in ten minutes. I'm going to go write a grant to Crayola. <laughs> Good luck with that. Thank you very much. So dress for success. Obviously, I don't think anyone would ever contend to to say you're lazy. So um, a million women, eight countries, 96 cities, that's extraordinary. How do you well, – I didn't do, you... do it by myself. <laughs> oh, lie to me. Lie to me, lady. Lie to I me. I did it all by myself. I that's what I want to hear. I single one of those women by Excellent. myself. That's and fabulous. And excuse me while I go take a nap. No, I did not do it by <laughs> myself. I mean, the, the, the greatest thing about Dress for Success actually was the expansion model. And so um, I actually used a case study from Dunkin' Donuts, a, a Harvard Business School case study on Dunkin' Donuts on how to franchise. And um, and so there's a nutty woman like me in every one of those local dress for success markets, and I think there's now even over a hundred markets. So um, uh, there's you know someone who's put a lot of love and a lot of time. I mean, you know, Matthew, you're you're a crazy entrepreneur too. So there's, well, there's one of those. Yeah, <laughs> there's one of those crazy people in every one of those markets helping women, you know, reclaim their destinies and. It's. I, I mean, I was privileged to be part of that organization. I learned so much. It was like the greatest finishing school I could ever go to was the seven years that I spent at Dress for Success. And um, I met some of the greatest people from the women starting it in places like Boise and, uh, you know, uh, Lackawanna and Seattle and in New Zealand to the clients themselves who I learned so much from. I mean, being a, a single mom and trying to make ends meet, that is hard stuff right there. Um, well, well I, don't, I don't know if you saw my, my Facebook um, wall. I'll just use the word wall explosion from last week. Um, I'm having, we're having twins uh, in May. <gasps> Congratulations. So oh, I'm, that's great. I'm, I'm, right now I can say schadenfreude for you because you know, <laughs> it's knowing when you're dealing with children and all that you're doing. But now it's wow. real, and I'm going to be in, you know, sort of in that similar situation. Well, your whole life is about to change, and and oh, that's really exciting! Congratulations on having twins. That's great. That's Thank really you. Great, and how great for them! You're going to be a great dad. So they say. <laughs> Only time will tell. <laughs> My wife will have three children. Wonderful. <laughs> well, then she's had a lot of practice. She'll be ready for this. Yes, time. she has uh, ten years. She's had plenty of practice dealing with me. In fact, she's in the chat room tonight, so she'll commiserate. So fabulous. <laughs> so, uh, how did how did do something start? Wh- who who uh, who founded it? So Do Something started actually in 1996 by Andrew Hsu, back when he was on the first Melrose Place. Um, he he probably could have used his all-American boy status and his fame to start a cologne or like a clothing line or something, but instead he convinced Aaron Spelling to give him a minute of airtime at the end of a show, and he created Do Something. I mean, he really it, he created a youth movement back then. Um, uh, you know, it was sort of on the heels of um, the Clinton youth movement, sort of right. has echoes of today. Arsenio today Hall, baby, Arsenio Hall. Ar- woo, 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 exactly. And um, uh, and so they launched Do Something. And, you know, being on the cover of Sassy Magazine and, uh, and Leno six times a year, he really had a, a terrific platform for engaging a lot of young people um, to do good stuff. So that was before the, um, the internets. Existed. Uh, what, yeah, what? that was pre-Al Gore inventing the internet. Right. So, <laughs> what did what did what did people do 
I mean, it's almost like how do we live without cordless phones? Without the internet, I don't know. I guess there's just a lot less porn. I mean, I don't know what did people do without. I would debate that, but anyway. (laughs) I'm not talking about your personal experience. I just I don't know what people. I don't know. Yeah, so that was before the internet, and then so I came to do something in 2003, and they, you know, things times had changed. It was post 9/11, and sort of funding had shifted all over the place. Andrew was no longer on Melrose. Melrose wasn't on the air anymore. They lost a lot of um, sponsors, and the place had kind of fallen on hard times. And I said, you know what, guys, it's, it's called the Internet. This is the year after Friendster, the year before Facebook. And I said, we're going to put the whole thing online. And I closed the remaining local offices, and um, we really focused on it being uh, communications technology. So we leveraged web, television, mobile. And um, it's a really cheap and really effective way to reach young people. Nancy, hi, it's Lisa. Um, hi. Went, hi. Does it, so does Andrew still have any affiliation with, with uh, the organization? Was yeah, I talk to him. I talk to him a few times a year. Um, um, and Lisa, will be like between you and me and all the women listening, he still looks really good. <laughs> and um, I think he has a new to, fiance. Is that right? He does. Right? Well, yes. That's right. With apologies yeah. to her. That is, yeah. is absolutely true. And she is lovely, his new fiance. Yes. But, I mean, yeah, he looks adorable still. Um, he doesn't age at all. And um, he's still been just one of the nicest guys on the planet and, and smart and, and really caring. And, and, yes, he has a fiancé. Did I mention that? Um, <laughs> well, I remember, <laughs> as, as, you know, as, as someone who covers entertainment, I, I remember him really being out there as one of the first of the sort of contemporaries, like you said, the Melrose Place crowd and of sort of my generation and thinking, you know, and I've interviewed so many actors out there and thinking, like, He's smart. He's got his act together, and uh, he's well-rounded, and he's, you know, I remember him being a soccer player and sort of into all yeah. sorts of different oh, things. Oh, I hear it. You were in love, too. I get it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, like, long before Paris Hilton ever said, I'm going to go to Rwanda and Africa, Andrew was actually doing good stuff. I mean, he was one of the early celebrities who was like, yes. you know what? I actually have a lot of power, and a lot of kids are listening to me, and I'm going to do something good with it. And, yeah. uh so I mean, uh, you know, he he really he put his neck out there early, and um, right. he did do a lot of good with it. I mean, here we are. Also, a lot of the celebrity activist stuff is like one event or one campaign, but here we are, almost 17 years later, and um, thriving. So it, I mean, I think that's probably the best testament to his leadership. Absolutely, and not just one event, but let's face it, a lot of them want to put something on their bio. It's it's sort of this perfunctory thing where their publicist will say. Look, you know, let's do this, and you know, you go and talk to them, and they're really not knowledgeable about this stuff at all. But they feel yeah. like they have to, you know, it's got to be on there, and they just make the perfunctory sort of appearance. And um, yep. so, anyway, it's great to. Uh, you know, I didn't even realize there were male characters on Melrose. <laughs> <laughs> I just paid attention to Heather Locklear. That's all I cared about. <laughs> Wasn't Tiffany Amber Thiessen on that or something? Uh, or probably. Yasmine Bleeth or one of them? Tiffany. <laughs> Tiffany, okay. Yeah, she was like the crossover convert from 90210, right? See, I hear Tiffany, I still think, I think we're alone now. Doesn't seem to be any. Remember that, Tiffany? The mall she singer, Tiffany? too. Yeah. Well, Nancy, no, you are multi. I got to add that to your uh, bio. Me? Hang on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're, just, we're just going to mute the mic and just let her go. Oh, Grammy no. nominee, Nancy Loveland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Well, unfortunately... Um, we oh, no, are we to, out of time and we no. didn't talk about anything of substance? Whoops. No, 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 I'm, okay. Lisa, Lisa has to leave. So uh, we're gonna, bye, Lisa. Lisa has to leave, but Lisa will be joining bye, us. Bye, Nancy and all. Uh, it's been fantastic to be here, yeah. and I hope to be back soon, and this is uh, great. Thank you so much for letting me uh, sit in on this. All right, so we're going to give Lisa a quick round of applause. Thank you for joining us. Please.
Can't wait to have you back. Woohoo, Lisa! Oh, wow. You love that button, don't you? My fa- Actually, I like this button better. Uh, let me cue this up. This is my favorite button. <laughs> I would like that button at home. Can I have that button at home? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, actually, I like this one. This, one, this was Jack Buffard's uh, favorite here. Holy crap! Looking like good Peter Griffin there. <laughs> All right, so like, let's take the next next five minutes or so uh, before we get to bring on um, bring on Adam here to the show. Is let, let's talk about what Do Something has actually done. Yeah. Where do you want to start? I have to well, take like, a deep breath before I go there. Well, I mean, obviously, there's a huge breath of, of response to that question, but I, I think what would be really relevant to tonight's uh, audience is how you managed to really put an interplay with the offline and the online. At the same time, because it, it was always like with MySpace when it came out a couple of years ago, it was always creepy to think that you would meet these people in the real world. But yet here we are today where, you know, it took something like LinkedIn to make it like sort of acceptable to talk to people, you know, um, in, in, you know, in, in the real world. And now there are even Facebook groups of people that are actually doing stuff in the real world. So what was that like like how did you yeah, guys our, our whole purpose is to leverage the power of those communications technologies to do good stuff offline so right. i heard some of this slacktivism conversation which we were talking about 6 months ago um on do something slacktivism um uh, i heard you have that conversation with jason rezepka and um that's like the paradox the, the paradoxical opposite of what we're doing at do something the whole point is to just use these communications technologies to propel really amazing offline work. So, for example, every month there's a different cause of the month. Last month was our huge national push for canned food drive because the food pantries are really low. And um, it's estimated that we are responsible for collecting about a million pounds of food. This month the, our cause is supporting our troops, and we're collecting letters for the troops in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Um, and that's actually taking the campaign of one of the kids that we supported in Chicago and just supersizing her campaign. She started this organization called A Million Thanks, and so we're driving letters to her. Um, so every month it's a different call to action, something that kids can do that doesn't require money, an adult, or a car. Wow, that's actually perfect. I think so, Thanks. So uh, I, you guys did something with, with, with um, I mean, can you give me, like, one or two other examples? Um, like, uh, you did something with jeans, right, denim or something? Yeah, yeah. So one of the issues that we focus on um, in January is youth homelessness, because no one seems to know that a third of all the homeless in the United States are under the age of 18. It's a, it's a big problem. And if you ask, we, we did a phone call to all of the youth shelters in America, and if you ask them, what's the first thing that a teenager wants when he or she gets to your shelter? And it's denim. It's blue jeans. It's no different from any other teenager in America. And so we do a huge campaign called Teens for Jeans. And, again, all of that is online, on Twitter, all over the place, asking kids to bring in their blue jeans um, uh, to a local Aeropostale store. We partner with them. And in three weeks last year, we collected over 200,000 pairs of jeans. Wow. So almost every homeless kid in America got a new pair of jeans because of us. And um, this year we want to collect over 250,000 pairs of jeans. So um, that campaign starts up again in the middle of January. 
So, Nancy, just, uh, just to sort of drill into what we were talking to Jason about a little bit earlier, and you just commented on it a little bit, how, how is what Do Something is doing, how is that sort of anti-slacktivism? I mean, or is there a way that we can take advantage of and leverage what's happening in that space where people, you know, they want to click and they want to add a cause on Facebook or they want to perform an action? That sort of is the beginning of the pipeline. How can we leverage Do Something, and, and how does Do Something play into that a little bit? So um, we see all those communications technologies as exactly that, communications technologies. They're not ends in and of themselves. So, for example, I tweet at do something, and there are, I think, about 218,000 followers there. And the point of that account is not just to have people retweet. I don't care if anybody ever retweets the 140 characters that I put there. Right. I care if somebody sees something there that they can actually do. And, and that's the big difference. It's not about driving traffic to a site because we'll get advertising revenue as a result. That's not how we make our money. And I understand that you know, other companies' um, traffic is, you know, is the end-all, be-all. To us, if we have fewer uniques but more kids taking action, I'm cool with that. So you know, in theory, it would be great if we had like 5 million uniques a month on DoSomething.org, but I'd rather 5 million kids taking action a month, and the, our number of uniques doesn't necessarily translate into the number of kids taking action. Does that make sense? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you know, to me it's all about what's actionable and, and give me something specific to do uh, that's going to benefit one of the organizations that we work with. And, you know, certainly, you know, there's an argument to be made. A lot of organizations will say, hey, you know, we need awareness. But, you know, if the, end, if the end goal is to get somebody to volunteer to, or to perform an action or to donate, then, you know, that's, that's really where you should be measuring, not, not what's in the beginning of the pipeline, right? So. And, and so, you know, on the, on the donation, again, we are the only organization I know of um, that has an express policy against raising money from people. <laughs> it sounds absolutely ridiculous, but we, don't, we do not raise money from these kids. So, Absolutely. I mean, you will never see us do a campaign that costs them anything or that asks them to donate or to hold a fundraiser for us. And, you know, given the size of an audience that Do Something attracts, we could make a lot of money off these kids. But we've just decided that we'd rather they use their time, energy, and money to have an impact on some other cause. And it just puts a larger onus on us to find other ways to, to support the organization. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's really because, I mean, there's slacktivism, which is all about clicks. But then I also think there are a whole lot of organizations whose entire purpose is just raising money. And that's fine because maybe the money goes somewhere good. But that's also not activism or action by kids. That's fundraising. So our goal is truly to have kids do something to make a difference. That's, awesome. that's a catchy name. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could claim credit for it, but that was Sexy Andrew Shoe. <laughs> Who? I just, I just Heather Locklear? What? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got to tell you, it, it, it's been an amazing uh, privilege and honor to get to know you. I'm looking forward to hopefully being one of those projects you guys activate your constituency to support. Uh, we we have spring. to do something. We we have to because I mean I, I, we can't do this interview without me saying something about how cancer sucks. Was that enough? Was that good? That's fabulous. Okay, you could, you could be more cursive if you want. <laughs> <laughs> we're, going, we're going to do something with you. I'm, I'm committing right now here on your radio show. We will do something with you um, in 2010, I promise, because this is an issue that touches... Ooh.
Oh, there we go. I got a sound effect. <laughs> Woo. That touches in some way or another, you know, every kid um, in America. And so we're, we, we've got to do something with you on this issue. So we're going to figure it out, Matthew, I promise. And if nothing else, I'm just going to continue, you know, tweeting and supporting and, and, and pushing to you via the content on our site because we think what you're doing is awesome. <laughs> All right. There we go. <laughs> I need really. Can you just put those on a thumb drive for me? I'll just bring them at, at home. Like, I, I want to bring. I want to put them like in my bedroom. Those are some pretty good sound effects right there. Well, thank you Goodness. so much for being on the show. I look forward to seeing you again very soon. Have a wonderful me holiday too. season. Okay. Bye. All right, bye, Nancy. Nancy Loveland, everybody. Okay, and now our third guest tonight. Adam Hirsch is the Chief Operations Officer at Mashable. Joining Mashable in the fall of 2007 as Community and Marketing Manager, he oversees Mashable's business development, including marketing, partnerships, advertising, sponsorships, and events. His initiatives include the Open Web Awards and the Summer of Social Good, as well as an event series such as Summer Mash Tour of 2008 and the 92nd Street Y Tribeca Next Up NYC Educational Series, please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the one, the only, Adam Hirsch. Hey. I forgot, you hear me? Yeah, I forgot to mention the newly engaged Adam Hirsch, so mazel tov, brother. Awesome, awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, mazel tov back to you, apparently. I was, there, I was there at that uh, staged event. It was, it was wonderful. It was a sight to behold. Watching oh, the engagement. Thanks. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Craig, Craig was in in the audience when you proposed, along with everybody else on live broadcast. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty easy. I didn't really have to tell too many people. It spread like wildfire right. to uh, social media these days, and and of course, you know, uh, parents were secretly planted in the audience at the end, so that helped. So I, I obviously Mashable is a phenomenon. It is it is an absolute social and anthropological phenomenon. And what, what Pete uh, Cashmore, the handsomest man on the Internet, has done is unprecedented in the annals of, uh, of sort of um, digital lifestyle, if you would. And where, how did you get involved with Mashable? I mean, first of all, let, let's start with this. For the, for the folks out there in the cheap seats, what is Mashable.com? Uh, Mashable is uh, a blog, uh, to be on the simple side but. Basically, we're a social media news source and resource covering anything related to social media, which is basically really the entire web these days, anything that has some sort of social component. Um, so we cover the news, anything related to like Google or Facebook, but also, you know, and all the startups, but also we, you know, give uh, resources posts out there, including like, you know, uh, how to use social media for social good and um, how to find a job using social media and all of that fun stuff. And what's your history? Where did you go to school? What did you study? And, and are you actually doing something relevant to your degree? Uh, no. Uh, Cornell, uh, originally nutrition, food, and agriculture, and then general studies, and then went into uh, real estate uh, kind of as the admin. I was going to be a cook when I moved to the city, but realized I didn't want to stand on my feet forever, so I wanted an air-conditioned uh, seat job. Um, so I fell into real estate as an admin. And uh, basically went from one uh, company to the competitor because I was that good. And I basically optimized the entire office. I was like their web designer, their graphic designer, their um, you know IT department, executive assistant, um, 
And so I basically optimized the office so much that I was just bored. I mean, it was a busy office, but everything was streamlined. So I got back into blogging. I wanted to, you know, beat whoever the other Adam Hirsch's were on the Google page. And, uh, you know, from one thing led to another, started talking to Pete. And uh, basically became the first business uh, side person at Mashable, um, you know, community marketing, and really focused on how do we grow the community. And it was the first event, you know, uh, shortly thereafter, and I was shocked. You know, my uh, first event probably about a month after I joined, um, just in New York City. You know, I expected maybe like 20, 30 people. I didn't expect like 200 people plus to like pack into a venue um, just to kind of come and meet each other. And it was kind of that whole foray into there's this all online offline component, which I think is very crucial to, uh, you know, not just Nashville, but obviously uh, you guys as well, and uh, a lot of what the internet does and how you grow. Well, I got to tell you, it has been a bit of a phenomenon. I mean, I've been using the web for, you know, I remember having a, a Vax account in 1992. With I went to Binghamton, so, you know, Southern Tier Brothers right here. Did you go to Ag Life at Cornell? I did, yeah. Okay, I applied to Ag Life. I, I wanted to be in a place that had a little more than nine people population, so <laughs> beyond the university. So I, I went to Binghamton. So we're fans of Wegmans. That's what you need to do. Mashable and Wegmans. That's what you need. We got I wish. I wish plant, there was a Wegmans in New York City. That would be awesome. Let's plant that seed. The summer got of it. social Wegmans. <laughs> got it. A whole big campaign. I'm ready for it. That's yeah, a, I'm still ready summer. for it. And it has Perfect. to rotate around their M&M's cookies because they're the, made of heroin, hands down. <laughs> awesome. So, 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 I mean, I think you guys are an amazing button to the show because we talked with Jason at MTV, who is about using traditional media to leverage online media and, like, this philosophy of slacktivism. And then we talked to Nancy at Do Something, which is how do you convert uh, the online engagement to offline activity. And then you guys are like the social anthropological barometer of everything that goes on within both worlds. And I'm talk a little about what your experience has been like becoming almost like you're, you're a living, organic, breathing ex- entity in the because you, you've gone offline as well, the fact that you organize these offline events and you're engaging people around social good. So can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the really impressive thing um, over the course of, uh, it more specifically uh, about a year ago where kind of the uh, summer of social good was born, it's just kind of amazing to see the, the power of the Internet, right? I mean, to be able to uh, raise, you know, $10,000 in one day, uh, you know, Pete was doing that, uh, you know, charity water um, mission, and basically, you know, on his birthday, I think September birthdays was the campaign, and raised $10,000 in one day, and I was just like, wow. Never, you know, I, I, you know not, and not just, you know, not from big organizations, this wasn't corporate giving, this wasn't, you know, pandering to um, major corporations at all, this was, you know, just the people out there listening to him on Twitter. Um, and that was amazing. And then followed shortly thereafter, um, you know, in November was Tweetsgiving. And, you know, just the rapid response of the entire community forming and forming, you know, events and just figuring out how to get other people involved was amazing. And then those, to me, are the two biggest things that really happened in, like, Twitter lands over the past uh, year that kind of spurred uh, the next big thing, which was really, I guess, um, uh, what is it called? Uh, flexible. Flexible was like the kind of that pinnacle of how do you use both sides and having events, on, you know, their um, events tied with the online, tied with planning, 
everything was planned online, but yeah, everything led to events. And I think it was just uh, really impressive and kind of just a good stepping stone, not just for social good and for charities, but really for any brand out there and kind of learning about what works, what doesn't work. And, you know, the Summer of Social Good was, you know, a good example of figuring out, you know, week by week what works, what doesn't work, and uh, still working on the uh, case study, which will be out uh, sooner than later. But, uh, you know, I really want to present that data, present, uh, you know, what we learned, what we didn't learn, and what we could have learned, and what we did right, and what we didn't do right, and kind of give that advice back out there. Um, so, so, Adam, you know, so, so, Adam, if I could just jump in here for a second. You know, I just I wanted to segue into, you know, we're at the end of 2009 now, and we, and we can look back in the past and we can say, okay, we did great work with Twestival and Tweetsgiving and Summer Social Change, or Summer Social Good, rather. Let's talk about next year. Let's talk about the forecast. Let's talk about the future. Uh, from Mashable's perspective is sort of the barometer for all things social media. Let's talk futures. I mean, where are you guys going, and, and what are you predicting for the following year? Right. Uh, I mean, you know, kind of bouncing off someone else's uh, post that they wrote that I've been uh, even talking about probably for about uh, since uh, that actually the Social Good Conference, um, Randy Zuckerberg mentioned and launched the uh, ability for Facebook gifts to go to nonprofits, and there were four initial nonprofits joined, and that program is going to start expanding soon. And if you look at the um, the culture of the economy on the web and how quickly um, virtual gifts are spreading. And, you know, you look at games like uh, Farmville and uh, Pet Society and how amazing it is that people are willing to spend 20 to 30 bucks just to get some extra gear or whatever it might be. I think virtual gifts and micropayments are going to be the next big thing. I mean, Facebook Connect will indefinitely become the next big payments gateway, um, you know, a competitor almost to uh, PayPal if they don't join forces. But, you know, you've got PayPal X, uh, which is a platform out there now. You've got Facebook Connect going to have this ability as well. And and Google Checkout, and Google's obviously expanding their profile. So I think the ability to make it so easy and, I mean, you, you won't even have to think twice. You just gave. Yeah, but micropayments micropayments are about more than just ease of giving. It's it, it's also about the barriers to giving in terms of the cost for the merchant. So gifts that are under $10 tend to be very, very expensive for people to process. And I know that PayPal's worked on that. Amazon is working on that a little bit. And then obviously uh, Facebook Connect as well. But, you know, I, I agree. I think, you know, the industry's been working on uh, the whole micropayments initiative for the last couple of years. And I hope we see it in 2010 because you'll see organizations like I2Y and many others benefiting from it. Most definitely, yeah. I think I think ultimately Facebook Connect will come out ahead when it comes to charitable giving, you know, because even if it's, you know, $20 every month, that won't be, you know, you wouldn't even realize it that you just did that, but at the same point, you, you pressed yes, you accepted it, and it's something that you believe in. And I think it'll just be, you know, one less barrier to giving, which is, you know, one of the things I'm working on now in my case study is, you know, how easy can you make it to give, you know, in relation to your message, you know, what what is, you know, what does the twenty dollars get you? Maybe the twenty dollars gets you a badge yeah. that you can now proudly display. Maybe it gives a gift to somebody else, um, you know, that keeps keeps growing. It becomes its own virtual pet or virtual flower that grows over the next couple of, you know months as you keep giving, you know, there are so many different 
creative ways you can use the internet and the, and the web these days that's just going to keep expanding about how do you get that personal gratification and satisfaction and also, you know, membership, you know, how do you say, hey, listen, I support IBY for stupid cancer, you know? Well, I, I just have a quick question here. I want to know if my um, if Facebook Connect is going to work with my Harrison Ford replicant when they come out in two years. <laughs> of course. Of okay. Because he's yeah. going to hold a gun to people's heads for their micro donations. That's okay. That's okay. It, it'll be legal in two years. Okay. Fabulous. Or my Haley Joel Osment fake robot from 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 AI. Or the Knight Rider car that just pulled up with Adam in it before. Yes, that's right. Or, or Kit. Right. Definitely Kit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's going to be funny. We're going to have, like, these key fobs at gas stations that will just say, do you want to add a penny, you know, to your – and it'll your, your Facebook Connect will buy you gas at, at, at uh, Gulf or whatever, and you'll be able to add a dollar there. Do you, do you foresee that just taking over consumer culture? Like, are we on a trend now where social giving is literally the new black So because it's become so one-click, slacktivist, offline accessible? Yeah, I've seen behind the scenes some organizations playing with it. I mean, you know, and, you know, in visible light, you can see eBay working with a lot of different brand partners. And at the end of a checkout, you, you know, do you want to give an extra $10 for this organization? I think that's the one side of it. There's another side where basically big organizations, you know, I mean, let's face it. There's always going to be uh, tax benefits for major organizations to be donating to charity. It's just a matter of how do they then do that, where it's not just a logo on, you know, on a banner at a, you know, at a race or something like that. How do they get long-lasting engagement with the brand? So I think that you're going to see a lot more brands getting engaged on, especially on the online side, when it comes to uh, charity and uh, giving and nonprofit-related causes, um, because you know their money and their donations can go a lot longer and have you know, an affiliation that can then carry on past, you know, a specific event or a specific campaign. Yeah, I mean, from everything that we've seen, and, and I couldn't agree with you more, it's it's definitely about allocation and democratization of that giving process because when you look at the average Fortune 500 company giving in excess of uh, $50 million or so a year all the way up to, you know, a couple hundreds of million a year, and it's going to such a limited amount of nonprofits, and it's usually the bigger uh, brand names, what we're really looking at is how do we take that and redistribute it a bit? You know, how do we make it more democratized so that the consumers can speak and so that employees can speak? Right, definitely. And, and you know, those platforms are coming out there and certain organizations are already, you know, working on, you know, polling uh, their company of, you know, what charities do you want to give to? I mean, you know, the, I've seen beginnings of that. I think it will definitely grow a lot further, especially when in-company social networking is growing. You know, to have uh, probably a third-party product that someone will build sometime soon that can basically analyze their entire, you know, social network to determine what are the best charities to give to, amongst probably a lot of other scary things they can determine from something like that. I'm sure that's definitely in the works already, if not, you know, behind the scenes already working. Well, we're just about out of time, but I wanted to just get one last comment from you. I think the, the coup de grace from Asheville at this point was the fact that, uh, and I, I wasn't in the room with Ted Turner when it happened. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. But you guys just hooked up with CNN big time. And uh, what's that been like? I mean, it's just been uh, absolutely phenomenal. We've been working with uh, kind of CNN on the CNN.com slash live side for a while. 
Um, CNN uh, launched their new website about uh, a month and a half ago, two months ago. And uh, so when you go to CNN.com slash tech, um, there's a whole section on the bottom linking to the Mashable Post, which has been a uh, great traffic and kind of a uh, great, you know, great thing to say, you know, great, a great partner overall. But, you know, in addition, Pete's been writing a, a weekly column for uh, CNN. And, um, you know, basically his, his post, uh, I think, two weeks ago just exploded on CNN, you know, and was on the front page for an entire day. And uh, last week he was, oh, yeah, last week he was actually on CNN during Campbell Brown uh, show talking about the uh, top ten web trends of uh, 2009, 2010, actually. Yeah, and you guys were just ranked number one for something, weren't you? Uh, probably, yeah, number, it happens often. <laughs> it was like the, no, it was like the, the either the most talked about or the most influential or, or something huge for 2009. I forget what it was, but... Uh, I mean, anything you guys, well-deserved anyway. Was that the Entrepreneur Magazine? Yes, yes, it was. Okay, yeah. Thank you. I knew I saw it somewhere. I forgot where it was. (laughs) Yeah, it was (laughs) unmatchable. Well, um, we're out of time. I want to thank you for being on the show. But I I do want to say that if if Pete ever comes to New York, um, I'd like to buy him a drink. I'd like to buy you a drink, too, because you just got engaged and your your life is over. Because if my life's over having twins, you don't know what you're in for yet. You haven't been married. (laughs) You're one step behind me, so... We're we're gonna we're gonna parallel each other. So Excellent. with respect Excellent. to that, yeah. I would love to uh to buy um <clears throat> you and Sharon a drink and I'd love to meet Pete who's in town. Uh you guys totally kick ass. You guys serve as the entire baseline behind some of the content and information that I use to grow our brand and engage our constituency. So thank you for what you do. Keep doing what you're doing and good luck with everything. Have a great holiday. Excellent. Thank you. Definitely appreciate all the kind words. Thanks. Have a good one. All right, we'll bye, see you soon, Adam. Adam Hirsch from Mashable, ladies and gentlemen. And, uh, and that concludes our show. Craig, nice job filling in for Jack. I'm going to have to do it again soon. This was a lot of fun, Matt. Je- definitely an upgrade for Jack, though. <laughs> You're much more articulate. You dress better and you smell good. Oh, jeez. You're the opposite of Jack. <laughs> I didn't realize we were doing the sniff test. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, and now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, <laughs> you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's tonight's show. I hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick. At Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guests, Jason Rezepka, Nancy Lublin, Adam Hirsch, special co-hosts Craig Alvarino, and super special co-host Lisa Bernard. Next week's show, Health 2.0, basically everything we talked about tonight as it relates to your health, with Dr. Ed Shin from Theologica, Susanna Fox from Pew Internet, and James Saracen Khan, health economist and founder of Think Health. If you've missed any of our previous broadcasts, check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com or subscribe to our podcast at itunes.i2y.com. If you don't already have Carol Rosenthal's book, Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your Twice Thirties, it is available wherever books are sold. Remember, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. We'll see you all back here next week, my friends, live from the chemo deck. Captain Stubing, 
Craig Alvarino and I wish you all a great evening. Good night, folks. Go to bed, John Filbert. Fucker out. Oh,